This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey, welcome to the Hell Has an Exit podcast. I'm your host, Brian Alzate. This show is not affiliated with any specific 12-step program. If you or a loved one is struggling with an addiction, please find a local 12-step meeting. If you believe you may need detox or drug treatment of any kind, please call 888-699-9395 to speak to a specialist. The show is sponsored by United Recovery Project, a state-of-the-art drug and alcohol rehab facility. You can visit our website at unitedrecoveryproject.com. All right, welcome to Hell Has an Exit. I'm your host, Brian Alzate. And um, on this show, we interview individuals who have survived addiction and other sorts of adversities and have lived to tell about it, people that have an ability to inspire people with hope. And tonight, I got my buddy Adam C. in the building. What's up, um, Brian? What's going on, man? So you're just telling me you got six and a half years clean. That's awesome. Yes, sir. Also a Florida native. Correct, yeah. 305? Yeah, I, uh, I was born in New York originally. I just don't tell anybody that. And then mm-hmm. uh, I came down here when I was like three or four years old and uh, grew up in Miami, right in Miami Beach. Puerto Rican? Half. Half Puerto Rican, half Irish? Correct. Nice. Yeah. yeah. That's what I thought. So um, you're one of my favorite speakers, bro. I love hearing you speak. Uh, you got a great recovery, man. You got an amazing reputation that follows you. Yeah, let's just, let's hear it, man. Yeah, no, I'll never get used to hearing anything like that, you know. Um, I really appreciate that. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, you know, like uh, we came here to Florida. You know, my mom came down here with my grandmother. And, like, uh, my grandmother was like my mom, you know. And uh, that's how they basically, you know, did their best to raise me. You know, my mom had me pretty young and, you know, came down to Florida. It's the 80s, you know. And things just went that way. And, um, you know, there came a point where uh, – we came down to Florida and I was like, first time I was like truly happy. I remember, I remember experiencing like true joy, you know, mm-hmm. as a child, as time went by, uh, my grandmother got really, really sick, you know, she had various types of cancer and this is like the most important person in my life, you know what I mean? And so what ended up happening was, uh, she, um, you know, in getting sick, like I like shared a room with her at one point and like, uh, and like basically lived like slept next to her as she like deteriorated, mm-hmm. you know. And this is like really early on. I'm like six, seven, you know. And like she did like a lot of this came from like smoking and whatnot. So I do things like hide the carton of cigarettes and you know all that stuff. Like, you know, things were different back then. She like was smoking like three packs of Marble Reds a day. Like uh. drank a beer. You know what I mean? Like so this is like what I grew up around. You know, uh, my mom like worked in the hospitality industry you know, before it was called the hospitality industry, you know, it was like a fucking bar, you know what I mean? Like bar restaurant situation on Biscayne Boulevard. And, uh, it like from a young age, like ingrained that that's part of who you are. Right. Like, uh, my mom made her living off of people 
getting drunk, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and also eating and whatnot. Let, let me make it, you know, mm -hmm. dramatize it, you know? And my grandma, like, you know, the things that, like, that she appreciated most, uh, you know, were, like, you know, cigarettes and, like, you know, beer here and there, right? And, um, yeah, dude, and it just got – when I look back, it's probably, like, the most uh, – one of the most painful, like, first painful experiences, you mm -hmm. know? And so, yeah, and so she was, like – very she was obviously older she had my mom late my mom had me early mm -hmm. right and so she actually uh made sure that i went to school like she put me in like this catholic school right it's uh over on miami beach called saint joseph's everyone who goes to catholic school just fucks your life up huh well no actually like they kicked me out like off mm -hmm. top i went through kindergarten and then uh first grade yeah they were like yeah no they said he, he's got to go. In first grade? First grade, yeah. They kicked me out of first grade. What were you doing? Well, their excuse was handwriting. They said my... Wow. Yeah, yeah but that was, it wasn't handwriting. Like, it was, I was just like an unruly kid, mm -hmm. you know? Like, like the toxic relationships that I'm talking about pertain to family in particular, like my father. He was a Vietnam veteran, came back from war and wasn't the same person, you know? And when he used the way that he used, you know, he'd come back and be you know, extremely violent, my mom, mm -hmm. you know? And so I, that, and seeing the things that I saw, you know, at a very, at, at a very extremely young age, you know, I think uh, it just kind of transformed me into a different person, like desensitized me to a lot of things. Like, so thrill seeking became pretty easy. You know, it wasn't easy to, uh, to manage. So handwriting was a nice excuse to ask me to get the fuck out of Catholic school. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so she made sure, you know, and the other part of that was that she made sure that, like, we'd go to, like, church on Sundays and that, like, I had, like, my communion. Is mm -hmm. that what it is? Saying my first communion. And uh, she was, like, the person who brought God into the house, right? Like, or just the idea of a God, right? And so when she died, you know, God died with her. And that's where, like, my life, like, really changed. It's, like, a huge transition for me. I know it sounds kind of dramatic, but for me as a kid, it was, like, a really big deal, mm -hmm. you know? And yeah, and that just kind of like took me into like a different space, you know. Uh, at that point, like my view on things just kind of changed, right? Like the way that I react to things, you know, I had uh, I had a lot more independence now, right? Because now my mom's like scrambling to make sure that we don't want for anything, right? Uh, so she's working nights, sometimes days and nights. And so what happens, you know, it's an, just running around Miami, you know, mm -hmm. you know, that's what started things, you know, uh, it wasn't until like, uh, like late middle school that substances got involved, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? But yeah, that's, you know, that's, that's, that's leading up to the whole active addiction piece. Right. You know, it's, you know, Miami in the nineties is pretty wild. Right. I remember what part of Miami. I, I grew up in Miami beach. Mm -hmm. Um, there's a small town it's not necessarily a town. It's like if you go down 79th Street Causeway, between the beach and the city, there's this little island called North Bay Village. And that's where I grew up. That's where mm -hmm. I went to uh, that's where I went to elementary school and everything else. And, uh, you know, I, I went to like a magnet middle school. Like if you like do – if you're good at something, like whether it be math or language or writing or art or whatever that looks like, like they'll find a school – 
that is predominantly one mm -hmm. particular like socioeconomic racial background and then bust all the kids in there under the guise of a program, you know? Mm -hmm. And yeah, so I went to like, uh, I went to school in the city, you know? And it, and it was just, uh, you know, it was, I just remember, it was like a lot of time was like spent alone, you know? I, my mom had a son. It was a lot of time with just him and I uh, early on. So isolation was like no, was no stranger, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? I knew how to operate, you know, in keeping secrets. You know, they, it was very easy to keep secrets when you're the only one that knows, you know. Uh, it's really easy to keep secrets when there's no one to share them with. Mm -hmm. What ended up happening was as, uh, as time went by, uh, I just found myself just never quite fitting in, right? Like, like I, there was always just this divide. You know, there was this, these different groups of kids and they were just like so devout in believing this one specific thing that they believed in, whether it was like, you know, like these like gothic metal kids or like, you know, like hip hop kids, like whatever, or what they called it bass back then. And it was like, whatever it looked like, like they were like, just like, this is what I am. And I like both, you know what I mean? And I like different shit too, you know? And, and so it wasn't like, uh, it was really hard for me to like pick like a specific line or find myself identifying with a specific group of people, mm -hmm. you know? And uh, as time went by, I eventually like, I got to this, like uh, this school, it was a, it was another magnet school, but it was for art and design. And going to the school for art and design in, uh, in Miami, it's got design and architecture senior high school. It's still there. It's, it's a really nice place. Somewhere around there, like the summer before like high school started, like, you know, I was already drinking and whatnot, but at that point, like, I remember like getting high for the first time, like smoking weed for the first time. And I just remembered like now, like whoever is in this room, like these are the people that I belong with, mm -hmm. you know, it didn't. And to be honest with you, I don't even remember who was in the fucking room, but I just knew that those people were all right because they were vulnerable. I'm vulnerable too. And in this moment, like we're going to just sit here. Everything's mm -hmm. okay. And now we have a secret that we share with one another because we can't tell anybody. Yeah. About once you like to do something illegal with like a group of people, it doesn't matter if they were like preppy or like nerdy or gothic or, you know, some hood kid or whatever, like. When you guys had that secret, that bond that you shared, it was like this illusion of connection. And maybe like looking back in the beginning, there was a lot of connection. You know, it's almost like, you know, like you break bread with someone, but like, I don't know, like even like you got away with it and you got to like, you know, put visine in your eyes and like that whole thing. And Oh, yeah, I had the kit. I yeah. had like this little, like, you know, those like little like Guatemalan zip up wallets mm -hmm. that you have, like those like little woven things. I'm not Guatemalan. Well, I, <laughs> I know. <I'm> just <laughs> but the, uh, but yeah, I had like a like, cologne, mm -hmm. the Visine, like uh, this like metal, this crude metal pipe that yeah. I had in there, some, uh, some tin foil for, I don't know what the fuck. Mm -hmm. I just knew that drug addicts carried tin, tin foil. foil. And I knew that now I am a drug addict, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's, this is like an identity that I wanted to adopt, you know, whether it be like music, like the music, like that talked about drugs it sucked it wasn't really great music but i'd listen to it just because it talked about drugs mm -hmm. right and like bump it you know like this is like this is me you know this is who i am and uh you know and and like it gave me something to like cling to you know and i just kind of took on the persona uh you know or i no, no longer was adam you know i was adam the drug addict mm -hmm. you know what i mean because it wasn't like this like you know, romance period, like where it was like, oh, I smoked weed for several years and, mm -hmm. you know, decided whether or not like, no, like I smoked weed. I said 
what the fuck else you've been lying to me about? Because I, mm-hmm. I grew up in like the 80s and like the early 90s where like they had like eggs frying in pans and people jumping into like empty swimming pools, right? And like I smoked and that shit was nothing like that. You know, there was, my brain wasn't sizzling. I didn't want to kill myself. And so all I thought is how far can I push this? You know, and so right after that, you know, psychedelics, you know, different party drugs. And now I knew I wanted to be out. You know, everything started like uh, I remember like like skipping school for the first time. Like that happened long before I started getting high. But just, you know, it's funny, like you're indoctrinated with this belief when you go to school every day and you go through the same processes and the bell rings and you know that it's time to go and get up. And, you know, that you have to be at the next place before Mm -hmm. the next bell. Like you have this like this belief system that this is where you have to be. And when you finally break free, like you have this like tremendous illusion of freedom and emancipation. Not just that. There's like this imaginary consequence. Like, well, if you don't go to class on time, you're going to like have this huge consequence. Then like the consequence starts happening and you feel like you're not going to survive it or it's going to like ruin your world. And then you realize it's not a big deal at all. You know what I mean? Like um, you start to feel invincible. 100%, you know. And that's like that childhood wonder where, like, you know, I know for me it was just like when I started smoking and skipping school and hopping fences and getting into cars and hanging out with, like, the older crowd. It was just, like, dazed and confused, like, every movie I've ever seen. And then you have, like, the other kids that are just, like, following in line. You're just like, (laughs) Yeah, that shit's dead, you know. And, like, I was going to say the irony is that I would make fun of all these people that would, like, be fitting into, like, you know, the rules of school or whatever. I was dying to fit in, you know. I was dying to fit in so much that I was willing to fit in with the kids that were breaking all the molds. You know what I mean? I just wanted to be out of that fucking prison mentality of school and rules. Yeah, 100%. Like, you know, it's funny because I tricked myself into believing that I had like figured out this secret that nobody else knew when in reality, all I wanted was to be a part of, Mm -hmm. you know, and I just never felt okay. And this is long before the use of drugs, you know, Uh, you know, I'm not saying that like, you know, I was an addict long before I ever picked up like, you know, doesn't matter. If, you know, like the chicken or the egg argument, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's all scrambled now, right? Yeah. <laughs> so like, what does it matter? Um, but at the end of the day, like I remember having these feelings like super early on, you know? And and like a lot of times, like seeing like other people's families, you know, I've been actually, I've been delving back into some like work, you know, some 12-step work that, with my sponsor. And one of the things that popped up recently was, you know, like these fleeting thoughts come, like these memories start rushing back, mm-hmm. you know? And one of them was uh, like going to that high school that I was just telling you about. It was parent-teacher night, you know? And like all the parents are coming in to get briefed on what's going on, what projects are their kids working on, right? So all these parents came for their kids and they brought the kids that I go to school with every day. And these kids are my friends, you know? So I'm there, you know, by myself. And going to like meet with the teachers by myself about me, you know, not because I had to, you know, like there was no penalty for me. My mom was working, you know, it wasn't something like she had to like, you know, something she did wrong. Mm -hmm. But I just like remember like leaving there and hopping on like the three bus on Biscayne to go home and uh, this tremendous empty feeling and just 
truly feeling at that point, like, yeah, like you're completely different. Like you are not in the realm yeah. of reality. Everyone else had their parents there except for you. Yeah. You know, and I felt like I was like keeping up this appearance. And like, like I told you, you know, I'm the only one that knew. So it's really easy to keep this secret. In reality, it's no secret at all. Mm-hmm. You know, like the truth made so much sense. But in this particular situation, it just came back up recently, you know? And I remember, like, it's funny because, like, I remember sitting on the bus and, I, like, I'm sitting, like, in my car just feeling like I'm back on that bus. You know what I mean? It was like, all right, like, hey, let me move on, right? And um, they ended up kicking me out of that school for uh, stealing a triple beam balance. They didn't expel me, suspend me. Like they suspended me for a couple of days, but like they didn't invite me back the next year, mm-hmm. you know? But yeah, it was like this really weird time, you know? Like selling beeper chains that my friend stole from his beeper store. <laughs> that was like the first hustle, you know? Mm-hmm. And just like, uh, and, and wheeling and dealing, like, and it wasn't really early on, like I started to realize, like I enjoyed the hustle more than I enjoyed the actual high. Yeah, I think in the beginning, uh, I fell in love with the lifestyle. You know, like the lifestyle of using and whatever, just being labeled as like one of the bad kids was like exciting. And so when did you cross that line of it being, you know, the hustle and the lifestyle to get in and using and finding ways and means to get more? There's a few times. There isn't like this one defining moment or time that it changed, you know? I hear people ask me all the time, like, you know, like, what was your drug of choice? <laughs> right? It's like, dude, no, like a choice would mean that I have like some level of control. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't have any control, you know? Um, what if it was there and it was available and I could find myself within a comfortable range in order to use it, I would. You know, fast forward, like I moved up to North Miami Beach and uh, I moved in with my girlfriend at her grandparents' house you know, in this high rise. And we went out one night and uh, the first time I did cocaine was in the ladies room of a Chinese restaurant. Mm-hmm. And it was, uh, I was probably like 16 years old. So like, if you want to say like a defining moment, like that was probably it because nothing really happened. I didn't really get high. Uh, I, all I knew is that like my left tooth was numb. My left front tooth was like, I couldn't feel it. And there wasn't really like a high associated with it. But I just knew that I wanted to do it again and again. So I did cocaine for like two days and was found myself outside of a store asking for asking random people for money. Mm. You know, like right away. I was like, yeah, that's like I woke up the next day like, wow, like that happened fast. And I did cocaine for like for years, you know, up until like uh, 2010, mm-hmm. you know, like. And I was a big drinker too. So, you know, like uh, cocaine was just like steroids for my alcohol, you know, my alcoholism. You know, that was like my entire adult life. So I did what I knew and and I got jobs at restaurants and stuff. Like in between all of this, like I fancied myself like some type of a drug dealer. And uh, that couldn't have been like further from the truth. Like I sold drugs to people, you know, sure I did. But like, It wasn't really like that. Like, I have this, like, rap sheet, dude. Like, I've been arrested 36 times, right? Every other time I do something bad, Mm -hmm. there's direct horrible consequence, right? Here's a pretty interesting one. Like, I in uh, in 2005, I was homeless. I was living on my buddy's couch at this point. I Like, I was just hopping from house to house. 
I was really good at convincing people to let me stay where they were, you know, at their spot. And staying there, like he was like a contractor, you know, and did like construction work. I'm not handy at all, you know, but like I'll be handy for a place to live, mm-hmm. you know. So I would like, you know, use with him and and like go work with him. And sometimes, you know, some mornings I'm just not getting up because he gets up at like five o'clock in the morning. I'm not even asleep yet sometimes. And one day he comes in and he's like, he's like, listen, my buddy's up in Quebec and they have like a ton of like of these BC buds, you know, they have like a bunch of them and uh, they want to give us some to start selling down here. Now, this was right after Hurricane Wilma. What's interesting is that I remember like BC bud, where yeah. that it was like, if it was from Canada, I don't know why it was called BC bud, but you can distinctively tell it smelled a little different. It was like, yeah. yeah, super dry, like super compressed. It was like this like Canadian, like outdoor type of shit or like, mm-hmm. And, it, and like, let's, let's face facts. Like, it wasn't that good. Yeah. And, uh, but it looked good, right? Because it, it wasn't. It like, was like the mids of creepy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but you could always spot it. You'd be like, oh, this is VC yeah, bud. Exactly. Because it was like almost cardboard in a sense, you know? But the thing was, was that after Hurricane Wilma, you know, BC Bud sounded pretty fucking good because nobody was growing anything indoors because there was no fucking power. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it was really difficult for just it was as a whole, like the city, like that hurricane caught everybody off guard, you know. And so he comes up with this. And this to me, I'm like, this is amazing news, you know, like, like he's like, yeah, he's like, so I've been thinking. He's like, we'll go up there and we'll bring it back. And I'm like, yeah. We'll go up there and we'll bring it back, right? And then uh, that slowly morphed into, like, you know, me being the one that goes up there to go get it. And because we didn't have a lot of money, I would take an Amtrak, right, there and back in order to get it. Now, at this point, like, I didn't really have anything to lose, you know? I remember being, like, in a spot where it's, like, I just found this place of, like, you know, where I convinced myself that, like, my family hated me, you know, because uh, they were just so, like, immensely disappointed by the constant, you know, the constant letdowns, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, I constantly get fired from every job because I can't, like, keep appearances and things of that sort. And all I'm doing is, like, wearing pajama pants, like, hopping from couch to couch, you know. Uh, so I said, yeah, you know, and we, uh, so I booked the Amtrak. And uh, when I get there, you know, I meet these guys. And it, like, it was like in the middle of December or the beginning of December in 2005. And like, uh, and so I said, you know, and I said, no, I really want to take this with me because like, I wanted the money now. Mm-hmm. I wanted any type of profit or benefit from this whole situation now, you know? How much bud was it? Um, it was like, uh, it was, well, the, the cops said it was 30, right? 30 what? Pounds? Pounds. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was 50 but, like, the way that it worked, dude, like, I ended up talking them in to, like, yes, I'm doing this. So the guy was coming with me, like, the one of the guys that I met up there. Mm-hmm. Was, you know, I gassed up Florida, like, real heavy. You know, mm-hmm. meanwhile, we got no fucking power. And um, we take the train on the way back, and, like, and I'm just looking out the window, like, mission accomplished, mm-hmm. you know? And <laughs> <laughs> Obviously not. Yeah. Well, no, like, yo, like, like I, I figured if it was going to happen. It, it would have happened by it, the yeah, time it would, we got on the train. Yeah, you know, so I'm sitting there like this, like my, 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 my hand on my fist, like, like gazing out the window. And all of a sudden I have like, I hear like these two like big dudes like come over and they're like, 
they look at a seat that's next to me, which is supposed to be the seat that I'm sitting in. Mm -hmm. I'm still like just staring out the window, Mm -hmm. you know? And then eventually they asked me and they're like, uh, excuse me, are you Adam Castro? I'm like, oh, excuse me? Uh, And they're like, "Uh, yes, uh, what do you have in your bag? Like, what am my bag? They're like, yeah. So it turns out, like, I got, like, red flagged. I don't really know if that's the truth or if I actually got somebody called it in, but, like... The ticket on the way back was a one-way? What yeah. does that mean? Well, like, you know how you could book, like, a one-way or a round trip? Yeah. Obviously, I didn't need a round trip because I'm like, coming back here, Yeah. you know? So they booked it one way, and supposedly that's what got me flagged. And um, they said, can we start your bag? I said, no. You know, you can't. You know, like, I think we've, I think we've reached impasse here, sir. Yeah. Like, you can't search my bag. And uh, eventually they just ripped it out of my hands and opened it up. Who were they? Cops? No, they, yeah, they were the DEA. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, they were working there at Union Station and, uh, and they were picking out suspicious people who were possibly transporting and Drip. they just happened to pick you out? Yeah. I mean, it's, it, I don't you're even... Prob- you're probably wearing pajama pants. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, I was wearing, like, these, like, real shady jeans and, like... <laughs> and these, like, tacky dress shoes trying to play this, like, imaginary part that I had made up of, like, this, like, wandering, like, bohemian dude from Florida. They brought me in and I, and I sat in uh, Cook County Jail um, in Division One, Same building, like, uh, Al Capone was in. And, uh, wow. For uh, for like seven months, yeah, wow. and awaiting trial, you know, and like uh, it wasn't really the fact that like I was like so far from home or that I was in jail because jail had become home and I had been like in and out so often. Um, it was the fact that like I was facing six to thirty minimum mandatory uh, for a class X felony, mm. you know, with and, a bunch of priors. Yeah, with a bunch of priors, you know, I didn't have priors in Illinois, but you know, when I went to court. Um, you know, they said, uh, you know, it, they wanted, you know, it was a million dollar bond, hundred thousand cash, uh, in order to get me out, you know? So I just resigned myself to the fact that, uh, in the best case scenario, I'd be doing six years in prison, you know, in Illinois, you know, going to Statesville or something like that. And, um, how old were you? Um, December of 05, I was 26. So, and then like, I spent like a majority of my uh, of that year, like in jail in Chicago, uh, eventually, um, you know, as time went by, like, you know, your family starts to notice that you're not around. You know, uh, when I got in there, I just slept for like two weeks. Like, sleep. When I say sleep, I mean like I was sleeping like twenty hours a day. Every time something bad happens to me, and I don't want to like face life, I just get extremely tired. <laughs> I'll sleep for weeks, days in the car. Like every time I've ever been arrested, I have to go to court and like your brain can't imagine that this is really happening. Mm-hmm. You just like go to sleep. Well, like for me, what it was is that like there was so much uncertain for so long and the chase was so tireless, whether it be like, you know, getting higher, whether it just be finding a place to live or whether it be, you know, getting found out in some kind of scam, like whatever it was, like there, this was the first time that I had experienced what I imagined to be peace because I thought that like, this was the only certainty I had had, like I'm going to prison, you know? And so, yeah. So I, I just kind of like tried to figure like resign myself. Like I, this is like probably, you know, my first experience with surrender, if I really think about it. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I get a note passed to me from a guard 
saying uh, like two weeks in and they're like, call your mother. Apparently, like I was like on the news and like, uh, and there's like news articles mm-hmm. and the, the, a cop who they passed it on to, who wasn't even the DA agent, DA agent saw it and they're like, it's fucking weed. So they passed it on to like the local police, local, mm-hmm. local police took like pictures and, and. Uh, like it was a big drug bust. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. Look at this. Like, you know, me too. Like I was a fucking mule dude. Like I'm like coming down there with like, I literally had like probably $27 in mm-hmm. my pocket to like get back home and. And like, you know, so it wasn't like this big traumatic thing. And when they arrested me, they're like, dude, like, dude, you're so polite. <laughs> and like, I'm like, you know, they were like, you know, trying to like weigh at weigh the drugs, like pound for pound. They had like a triple beam. And dude, like I told wow. you, I'm familiar with triple beams, right? So you're like, just got, I got kicked out of high school for this. So I'm like, no, no, you want to do this and this. Mm-hmm. And, and so like, they're like, why are you being so polite? And I'm like, I'm fucked. <laughs> you know, I'm fucked. Like, you know, um, it is what it is. It's like, why am I going to make my situation any more difficult? And they were just like, they were like blown away by that, you know? And, um, but yeah, so like back to my mom, you know, so I ended up calling, uh, I called my mom and I'm like, how'd you find me? She's like, well, you know, you were on like TV and stuff. I'm like, but you're in Florida. I'm like, yeah, it traveled. And apparently there's this article where like the arresting officer says, well, it's not a boatload. But it's nothing to sneeze at. <laughs> and dude, like I like took like I sat there and like eventually, you know, when I didn't I didn't say anything, you know, and like I took this immense pride in not saying anything. And so yeah, it was, you know, and like that was like I took all this pride in that, you know, because that was like all that I could really say that I had left. Like I had these this like imaginary integrity. Mm-hmm. You know, this false sense of security. In that this. would happen to me every time. Like, I would rob my mom, but if I got arrested, I wasn't snitching. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, it's same. And so the one thing I didn't want to lose was being able to hold up my head in jail. Right? Like, fuck my mom. Fuck that. But when I go to jail... I need to be able to say some shit, you know, mm-hmm. because I don't care who you are. When you go to jail, like your situation's always different, you know, than what you're saying, you know, because people only know so much. Um, but as time went on and, and they started to realize the severity of it, you know, and they realized that like I was coming from Florida, that there was direct intent and all of that. Like, you know, they're like, yeah, this is looking pretty bad. And so like my mom like came up with like all this money and like uh, hired this attorney for me and like, uh, we filed a motion to suppress uh, the evidence because I said, you can't search my bag. And and, and they, I won and I got nice. out. Yeah. And I won and I, I got out of that. And I mean, like, this is like, this is like that, like some of this grace, but I didn't know that I was being given, you know, because that wasn't where I was supposed to be. You would think like, even with these, this like immense consequence and like this, like huge, like, wedge in my life, you know, of this like near traumatic experience, you know, life altering experience, right? That that would make some type of a change and it didn't. Mm-hmm. It was just worse, you know? And I always try to explain that to people is that like uh, consequences don't change addicts behavior. You know, normal people, yeah, like if you're not an addict, a couple bad consequences in any type of scenario, they start to change their behavior to not have the consequence. You know, it's dog training 101. You know, they don't they want the reward. They don't want the consequence. The addict like doesn't learn that way, you know, and um, I always say like this analogy that like, you know, if you have a pit bull 
that's grabbing onto something. Like you're never going to rip it out of its mouth. You have to give it something else. And for an addict, like we don't learn, like you can hit us, you can punch us in the face. Like we're not letting go of that behavior until we have something different. And for me, the only thing different that's ever worked is complete abstinence uh, also with the 12 steps and working a real program. No, 100%, you know, and that was, and, you know, that's, uh, like, this was still a ways off, you know, like, this is like, uh, mm. it's like 2006, Yeah. you know. When did you get clean, 2001? 2014, I got clean five days before my 35th birthday. Wow. Yeah, you know, it's weird, because when you get clean, right, and, like, uh, in this area in particular, here in, in South Florida, mm-hmm. you know, the opioid epidemic made recovery a lot younger. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, it wasn't, like... I remember driving by like a clubhouse that was on the street that I grew up on mm-hmm. in Miami on 79th street. And I remember driving by it and like thinking, like seeing these people standing outside, like they were like, be like, this is Florida heat. And they're out there like drinking coffee and smoking cigarettes on the sidewalk. Like this is like the eighties, you know, and they look haggard. You know what I mean? Like, I remember thinking like, that's what, you know, in my mind, recovery was like a step up from the methadone clinic, you know, <laughs> even worse. You know, yeah. it's like you got people that are on methadone and you have these people that are in recovery and they just like hang out together and drink stale coffee and sit around in a fucking circle in a fucking empty school gymnasium after hours and talk about their depressing ass lives. And they just don't use but are still like miserable and fucking weird and Jesus freaks. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I'd rather be on the methadone line. When I got here, you know, I got into recovery, everybody was like 21 or 22 years old. Mm-hmm. I was, I just. Especially in South Florida. I mean, South oh, yeah. Florida is crazy. In 2014? Even when I got clean, I got clean in 2008. And bro, there was mad young people with clean time. You'd go out to eat with people and people would be in their 20s, four years clean, six years clean, three years clean, you know. Yeah. I mean, because down here, like we survived like this like huge wave of like pill mills you Mm -hmm. know there was a time where i was seeing 25 doctors a month so at 26 you're not on opiates yet no Mm -mm. what happens in those nine years well what happens is like uh like in 2006 you started seeing like this wave of pill mills that started popping up you know you know people would like i'd have percocets and people would like ask me for them because i'd like get them in some kind of like package deal like yeah or a laura tab yeah like take this trash dude like no like i wanted like xanax and and, coke yeah coke and i wanted uh, you know roofies i wanted like benzos and like um and then i remember like you know these pill mills started popping up and like people started handing me like this like submarine, bright blue, uh, Oxy Oxycontin. Yeah, it was one sixty. One sixty. Yeah. yeah, you know those didn't last long. People mm-hmm. died like immediately, yeah. and like they're like, yeah, that's not good for business, you know. And, <laughs> uh, I was working in the hospitality industry, right? Because that's all I I knew. Because I could go in, I could work, and I get money, and I can use that money that night to go do what it is I want to do. It's right. the only job that does that. Yeah, 100%. Cash that night, you know. It's like it was the closest thing to selling drugs, you know. Uh, for me, in my head, you know, and so like people would start handing me like these like little, little blue pills and like, they're like, oh, and you can snort them and, you know, and I'm like, really? Like, it's so small. And I'm like, okay, well, how much is it? And they're like, it's like $10. I'm like, $10. I'm like, but like, I want like a hundred, you know? And they're like, well, you know, it's gonna be a thousand dollars, you know? And it's like, well, that's not going to work. I don't have a thousand dollars. I have 60 <laughs> you know, so I like pick up the new times 
If you grew mm-hmm. up in South Florida and you wanted to know some illicit, dirty shit to do, you go to the back of this free rag newspaper, right? Yep. And they'd have massage parlors, and then they'd be like, bam, bam, pain clinic, pain yeah. clinic, pain clinic, <laughs> cash only, cash only, no MRI on first visit. We have Oxy 80s. Yeah. I remember seeing, like, you'd flip to the back of it, and it'd be like a picture of an Oxy 80 that would say, we have 80s, no MRI on first visit. Cash only. Yeah. And um, I'm from Miami, you know, and I had to come up to Broward to do all of that, you know, and that's how I ended up living here. You know, I had this um, this doctor and he ended up getting arrested and uh, he was like taking like dead patients prescriptions and using them and and like all this stuff. And it got real crazy. You know, that whole time was mm-hmm. nuts. Like it just it was a complete warped reality, you know, and uh, I would take like the tri-rail up here uh, to Atlantic and right off Atlantic in 95 and go to see my doctor. Mm-hmm. And I remember like uh, I go to see this doctor and and I, like I told you, you know, like I wanted like all of these pills, but I didn't want to pay what you wanted. And I want to figure out like, how do I get to the source? You know, like take me to like the activist warehouse, right? Mm-hmm. And so the closest I could get was this doctor's office. And, and the first visit, you know, keep in mind, I'm like 26 years old, right? Mm-hmm. 27 years old at this point. And they're like, oh, yeah, you know, oh, yeah, oh, you've had a broken arm. And this and that. by the time I walked out, I had 240, like 30 milligram, you know, oxycodones. Yeah. I had uh, 120 15s. I had 90 bars. Now, listen, 90 bars. That's for a month, right? Because you're supposed to see a doctor every month. If you're taking three bars a day, you might as well as like live in your closet. <laughs> <laughs> like, like just about. Yeah, you're not getting shit done on three bars a day. Like you think you are. Like I thought I was really solving some problems, you know? And And that's just the bars. Yeah, yeah. that's just the bars, you know? And then like I started like learning the system and I'd be like, I have no energy. Perfect. Here's Adderall. Mm-hmm. And then uh, you know, some and I was like, oh well. Now my dick doesn't work. They're like, oh, here's Viagra. So by the time it's all said and done, I'm like, oh, my muscles are tense. Here's some Sumas. So mm-hmm. I go to these doctors and walk out with like at 27 years of age with like, you know, nine, 10 prescriptions. And um, that an 80 year old person on cancer wouldn't even be able to rationalize taking. Not even close. And mm-hmm. then so, but the problem was, was that. You know, like I couldn't, like I told you, I had 60 bucks, right? But I can't like afford the visit. So I would ask people to like sponsor, sponsor right? It's my first experience with sponsorship. <laughs> and so they would do that. And the problem was- I don't know, that's when they pay for the visit or they pay for the script or vice versa and you break them off at the end. Correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You break it down like a price per pill and mm-hmm. then you, at an extremely low rate, you know, and then at that point you just keep whatever's left over. But the problem was whatever was left over was just not enough. You know, so the next day uh, I picked up the new times again. You know, I'm like, there's another doctor up the street. You'll see him. And same thing happened. And then what ended up happening was like uh, every day of the week, Monday through Friday, my full time job was to go see a different doctor. But the problem was, was that with a specific doctor, unless they dispensed on site, you had to go to a pharmacy Mm -hmm. and you had to remember what pharmacy you're going to. Otherwise, you, know, you, you run the risk of getting arrested for doctor shopping. Mm-hmm. And um, a couple of times, like, they're like, what the fuck? You were just here like three days ago with this other doctor's prescription. And I, like snatch the prescription and run out the door, you know? 
Yeah, but if you went to like a mom and pop place, they wouldn't even care. Yeah, <laughs> you, you, had, you, you were more plugged than I was. I was like, I'm the guy who's snatching prescriptions and running out the door. Mm-hmm. And, um, and yeah, and so like uh, it got really confusing. And keep in mind, this is like the world's most delicate juggling act because I'm also taking my Xanax as prescribed, you know. So taking my three Xanax a day to make sure that I can cope with all of this because of all this anxiety and stress. Because <laughs> this is this is not an easy job, you know. And like, uh, <laughs> and the more Xanax I take, the more confused I get. Which pharmacy I'm supposed to go to? Um, eventually, like it's a tightrope. Yeah, yeah, you know, and it's like, you know, it's, uh, you know, fortune favors the bold, man, you know. And so, you know, I remember just uh, 2009, there started being talks of them. Uh, Governor Christ at the time was going to then implement the network. Where, the database. The yeah, database, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Whatever it was called. And I was like, <gasps> you know. Like, Everyone's freaking out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was like this, like, bout of anxiety. And, and uh, I remember going to, like, uh, you know, I'm from Miami, right? And so... I'm like, I'm going to go to fucking Overtown, right? And I'm going to start buying heroin for these people who can't fill their prescriptions. And, uh, and I'm like, <laughs> I don't know, Adam, but it's probably the smartest shit you ever came up with in your life. <laughs> like, this, I'm like, bro, no one else is going to think of this, you know? So then you transition from pills to heroin? Yeah, yeah. And then... Were you snorting it? Uh, I mean, like, very shortly. Like, I told like... Like, my life is, like, in this vacuum where mm-hmm. everything just moves fast, you know? And so I started shooting almost immediately. And mm-hmm. um, I just remember, like, uh, the first day that, like, dude didn't show up, right? Because I was, like, buying, like, enough for others. Mm-hmm. So, like, and he would come up every day at this specific time. And he just didn't show, right? And... uh after all these years, you know, after this like f- seven year run, like I remember finally. Wow. Yeah. That's I, when you first got dope sick? Yeah. Yeah. I was getting dope sick immediately. I remember like as soon as I was on opiates, I was dope sick more than I was high because I couldn't ration my, like, let's say I came up on 40 pills mm-hmm. in three days, they'd be gone. And then I wouldn't be able to get money for like three or four days. I'd be like just thinking of ways or I'd be able to get like a quarter of one or like get fronted a sub or something, a subutex at the time. Yeah. But I was dope sick all the time, bro. It's like sometimes I think back, I was like, what was I thinking? Because I hear so many stories like yours where people just used mm-hmm. endlessly for years. So, yeah. And like eventually, um, you know, as I'm like flirting, like you know, thinking I'm like this like heroin tycoon, you know, <laughs> with like 10 bags in my pocket, you know, that don't even really belong to me. Mm-hmm. And and I'm taking, continuously taking the tri-rail back and forth. And then like on, uh, on March 17th, St. Patrick's Day of 2010, I went to that doctor again. He had moved. Now he's like east of 95 on Atlantic. And he, he was like under fire, you know, so like the cops like saw me there and I'm, it's St. Patrick's Day. So I'm drinking in the car and going to the doctor and getting my scripts filled. And so when we left there, you know, they pulled us over and I had a bottle with somebody else's name on it. And so they charged me with, uh, they charged me with the pills because not all the pills matched. The pills had to match the bottle, mm-hmm. right? Like, cause they were like counted, yeah. you know, the count and all that. Cause they broke the guy off and, and uh, they ripped me out through the window and yeah. And so that was it. And, and that was like, I was resting in Broward lived in Dade. So now I'm like in jail in a different county, 
I'm a stranger to that, you know? And so what ended up happening was I was arrested in Dade shortly before that. So now I was on pretrial in Broward. I was on house arrest in Dade. So I had something on my hip and something on my ankle, right? And so like the microwave goes off. I have a fucking heart attack. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, and still trying to find more. And like my mom, like she just couldn't deal with it anymore. And she, I had this house arrest thing and she knew that I'd be going, I was facing serious consequences. And so she's like, here, stay in this studio apartment, like on 73rd and Biscayne, like stay there. And uh, I did. And I just would have people come buy their heroin and it turned into like the shooting gallery, you know, on house arrest. And like, I went to the, uh, my probation officer one day, he's like, I need you to come in. And I had just taken a drug test and I knew I failed, you know, I went to the probation office. And like, if you know you're going to jail, you have time to prepare. Like you use like every last bit of what you got and you put on like three t-shirts and like three pairs of socks. So you have stuff mm -hmm. while you're in jail. You have to buy it, right? You didn't suitcase anything. No, no, no. no. <laughs> It wasn't, I didn't, have, I didn't have enough to, yeah, I, it wasn't. Because that's normally the second step. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, usually, but the thing I is. I know people that are like, oh, I know I'm going to jail for 30 days, and they're like, I was like, how'd you fit all that up? They're like, oh, bro, I bought a half ounce of weed, I brought Somas, I bought subs, so I was like. <laughs> yeah, they have, they have, they have like a Louis key ball. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I get it. And, and, but yeah, and so I get to the, um probation office and he like says to me he looks at me he's like uh bro like you're a hot mess because i was nodding off it's like uh november in florida but it's like balls hot and i'm wearing like three t-shirts three pairs of socks and it's like november of like 2010 and he says he goes he slides me a post-it note and he says call them people he goes i'll see you next month and like i'm thinking i'm going to jail mm -hmm. and um what it actually was, was like, uh, I look at that and I look at the note. It's got my dad's name on it. You know, I haven't heard from or seen my father since I was like three years old. I was like really like tripped out from like, how the, f like, what the fuck is, like, what is this? It turns out the sister that I didn't know exist, mm -hmm. her favorite show was Police Women of Broward County. And uh, the officer who ripped me out the window of that car uh, in front of that pill mill was her favorite officer. And uh, she tracks the arrests of that officer and sees- Your name. Name uh. of her brother. She's, granted, she lives in, uh, they live up in Redding, California. So like uh, 3,000 miles away, like a sister I didn't know I had, like tracked me down. And so I got out and like, no, didn't go to jail, right? For this time. Put the post-it note on this table and stared at it and used for another two weeks. You know, in Christmas, I called them and I spoke to them for the first time, you know, in 30 years. And I found out that, like, you know, I have, like, family. You know, it was pretty, really interesting. Mm -hmm. You know, I asked them to help me with, like, money for a lawyer because, of course, you know, I'm not doing anything for free, you know. Even, like, <laughs> touching family reunions in active addiction, you know, you got to pay to play. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and they did. And, and it was really loving, really nice, man. And then the probation officer's like, yeah, that's enough. You got that. <laughs> now you got to go. And Dade was like, whatever, you know, Dade County is like, you know, we're time served. And 
but Broward wasn't having it. And they're like, yeah, you know, you arrested out in front of a pill mill and it was the hot button issue. They're like, yeah, we're going to court order you to this place. And they court ordered me to this like court ordered halfway house. Uh, was first step sober house. And uh, this was like my first experience with recovery. Mm-hmm. Right. And like, I was just happy to not be in jail. And like, I made it like 90 days, you know, my first time. And uh, like, I always got high and like went to strip clubs and got, you know, and did all that stuff. So like, I just like was really worried about not being able to like live this lifestyle, you know? So like after 90 days, I had like this like overnight you know, you can stay out overnight now after, because you, you know, if you're doing all the things you're supposed to. At the halfway. Yeah, 100%. The first time it was on the weekend, I didn't even go on the overnight. I just went for like lunchtime on a weekend with my roommate. And we went to this strip club and we drank Pepsi. And I left there and this was like so profound for me. I'm like, (laughs) I didn't drink. I probably spent a total of $9.00. I said, hung out at a strip club all day. This is amazing, right? Like, why haven't I been doing this all along, <laughs> right? And my buddy was there. He was drinking Pepsi too. I was like, where have you been? You know, I need people like you in my life, right? I'm like, let's run it back next weekend, right? And like, and so we go the next weekend. And this time he like brought like girls with him and stuff. And like, uh, they keep like dropping like, these subs, right? Like subliminals, like about drinking and stuff. And like, eventually it got to me, you know? And like, I looked over at him and I was like, I'm thinking about like ordering some beers. He's like, I don't know how to tell you this. He goes, but I've been drinking this whole time. (laughs) (laughs) I've been putting it in my Pepsi, bring it in with me. I was drunk last week. I'm drunk, you know? And I was just like, well, fuck, you know, like this is all travesty and you know, it's a big lie. Right. And uh, so I call the waitress over. She comes over. I'm like, I need two Coronas, please. And uh, she goes to go because, of course, please, because I'm a gentleman and like no lime. And so she goes to get them before she can even bring them back. I snatch them both off the trays and slam them right back to back because I didn't want like this will to go, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, she's like pissed off because half the other half of the tray almost went flying. Uh, and then I reach in my pocket. She's like, you got to pay, obviously. So I reach in my pocket and like my white chip comes flying out of my wallet, hits the carpet and shatters. Wow. <laughs> like it's like, and I look at my friend and we both start dying laughing, you know, at this moment, you know. And um, and this is like the longest I'd ever been clean. Like we're talking about like at this point like 15 years of active addiction, you know, no breaks, you know, even when I'm in jail, there isn't a break, you know, I'll find a way, you know? And so uh, this 90 day mark, right? So like, I hear people say things like, oh, you know, you know, I only got 60 days, you know, I only got, you know, 90 days, like shit, everything after 90 days for me was like uncharted territory, Mm -hmm. you know? And so, um, and like I managed to like keep up. I've always been excited about my clean time. I was excited about my clean time when I had 10 days. I was excited about my clean time when I had 25 days. Like I've always like every day was just like you said, uncharted territory. It was like something I had never done. Even the concept of counting the days wasn't even a thing before I got clean. And it was just such a amazing feeling to accumulate something 
for the first time in my life because I had never accumulated anything. Oh, 100%, you know, and it, it's the only way that, like, you can actually, like, measure, you know, there's only only unit of measurement. It's the only in recovery. Yeah, you know, it's the only unit of measurement we got, you know, because, like, you know, you know, clean, you know, clean time doesn't mean everything. You'll hear people say things mm-hmm. like that. But at the same time, like, yeah, but I got this much. <laughs> like, sure. I mean, I, I always say that, like, people say, like, oh, clean time doesn't matter or whatever. But, like, bro, we have clean time requirements to speak. We have clean time requirements. There's some uh, service commitments where you got to have five years clean. There's some service clean time requirements for service commitments where you got to have 10 years clean, you mm-hmm. know? So it's like we can't measure how good you're doing in your recovery because you can fuck up at any day. You know, it's a day-to-day thing, but the clean time is the only thing we can measure. And hopefully by your judge of character, we could tell what type of steps you're working. Mm -hmm. No, hundred percent, you know? And, and so like, uh, I remember like at this point, like I had, because of like that whole thing on like all those arrests and all of those monitors and all that stuff and the plea deal I'd taken, I had like this like, uh, suspended sentence, Mm -hmm. prison sentence, like over my head, the judge told me. Uh, Judge Lynch, like this guy gave me so many chances. Like if I, I need to meet him. Is it Broward County? Yeah. I'm pretty sure the last person on this show was talking about Judge Lynch. Really? Yeah, it's so funny. Yeah, he showed me some grace, right? Like I gave him no reason. Mm -hmm. But he said, if you come back in front of me, you'll be going to jail for a very substantial amount of time. And uh, Florida State Prison, to be exact. I knew all of that. And so I was in this court-ordered situation, but like you were saying, like consequences don't really mean anything to an addict, right? So I knew that, but now I just had to innovate and create and find new ways to use or, or to get around getting caught because there's no way. Like people are like, yeah, get honest, tell the truth, you know, for yourself. You know, secrets will keep you sick and like all this shit. Like, bitch, you ain't going to prison. <laughs> I am. So I remember, like, I had this, like, first, like, home group situation. I, like, used, and but I kept coming because I didn't know. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what else to do, right? And I knew that if I stopped going, people would know, right? Mm-hmm. So I would continue to go. And I continued to show up to this meeting. And then, like, uh, I would continue to, like, work steps, with this sponsor. Quotations. Yeah. You know, like I was reading, bro. Like that's all I was doing. I was like mm-hmm. reading this literature that he'd give me. And like, uh, you know, it was like homework, you know, and like I would show up to do it. Like, and uh, I, and then there would be like these service commitments on the weekend. Cause like this home group was like about service. Like that's what like, there was like their big thing that they would talk about. And so I'd show up to these service things after like being out the whole night. Like reeking about, like alcohol seeping out of my pores, mm-hmm. you know, and like being of service. There came a point where, like, you know, they're like, oh, six months is coming up, right? And I'm like, oh, is it? You know, like usually when you pick up like recovery chips, tokens, mm-hmm. or whatever you want to call them, there's like this three month gap usually. Right? After 90 days, yeah. Yeah. So when that six month came around, uh, they were more excited about it than I was about my lie. And like, so I went and I picked this up, you know, and I stepped in front of these people and got these, you know, these applause and these, and these hugs and all this stuff. And, uh, that for all intents and purposes, I didn't, you know, earn. Mm-hmm. Right. And it just didn't sit right with me. And then, um, and then by the time, like the nine month portion came around. Right. And I was supposed to get this like nine month 
chip token, whatever you want to call it. At the nine month port, uh, I remember them looking at me and they're like, listen, we've been talking and uh, we want to make you, you know, GSR of this home group. To me, this is like, you know, like these guys want me to be governor, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) And so I'm like, yo, this is all too much, you know? And I never went back, dude. And when I stopped going back, you know, it just eventually led to a place where I had just done enough to get this reputation to where people don't think that I would be the one to use. Mm -hmm. So I was able to slip through the cracks and uh, eventually got that probation terminated and uh, went on the most vicious four-year run uh, probably in my life. Wow. Yeah. And like had this like uh, super toxic relationship with this girl. She's like my best friend and my worst enemy at the same time. She'd be the first person that I'd stab somebody for, but she'd be the first person I'd fuck over and vice versa. And uh, yeah, and it just, it got ugly and I hit lows that I never thought I hit. And then eventually like we had this like argument one day and she's like yelling and I'm yelling back because she had like been out all night and stole all my stuff when I was passed out and the cops came and they're like, well, you know the rules. One of you has got to go. I was the only one who had a job at the time. I don't know why. I'm like, I'll go. You know, I'm no stranger to jail, mm-hmm. you know? And I went. Chivalry's not dead. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you know that. Right? And uh, and so, yeah, so I went. And I, and I got out. And they said, you can go anywhere you want. Just don't go home. They said, we're going to release you. Just don't go home. So I went home <laughs> and lived that life for like another 30 days. And then I uh, came home one night and there was like no power no running water. And uh, this is in September in Florida, you know? And uh, for those of you that are not in Florida or not aware, it's really fucking hot here in September. And so as uh, I came home, I knew that like, I had to go fucking get high in order to deal with this shit. I came home, she was there like dripping, right? Like there's no power. It's like, we live right off of Broward Boulevard. So I said, come on, you know? And uh, there's no public transportation. You know, after 10 o'clock in Broward, I never understood why. Dade, you can get anywhere you want, like 24 hours a day. So Broward was just like archaic to me for like a using addict, you know? <laughs> like, fuck you mean? Like, there's no $5 bus pass? Like, mm. And so, yeah, so we, we started walking up Broward Boulevard. And like, uh, we walked like four miles to go cop. And uh, when we did, uh, we were just about to like make this right turn to like, um, right off of like, it's like really, no, for like 31st, this Popeyes. It's really infamous, ominous Popeyes, right? And I'm about to like turn in there. Or like, well, not turn, I'm walking, right? Uh, but there's two cops. They have this street blocked off. And uh, I like have this vision in my head. As long as I keep looking forward, you know, they won't be able to see me. And I turn invisible, right? Apparently. Um, and so I just kept walking forward. And I got just out from in front of them. And I hear her like, say hi and like i like looked over at her <laughs> like when the fuck did you get so friendly you know and uh and they're like well now that you entered into this conversation willingly we'd like to have your ids you know i never had an id but at this time i just knew i just wanted to get honest and i told them you know who i was and um i gave them my first and last name you know my social gave them all the stuff that they wanted and in doing that they said we're gonna go to the car and if everything checks out, you're free to go. Great, you know, but from past experience, never in my life have they gone to the car, <laughs> everything check out, and me be free to go, you know? And so 
So they go to the car, they come back and they're like, Mr. Castro, you've been uh, very courteous and very cooperative. We want to thank you for that. Um, what you failed to make us aware of is that uh, you were in a domestic situation with her, point directly to her, uh, about 30 days ago. Ah, and this is the one person you're not supposed to be around. So you're going to have to come with us, right? And I'm looking at them and I'm like, my birthday's in five days. Like telling them like my birthday's in five <laughs> I got no you're running. guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got no running water, no power. But like, yo, like I'm really worried about this birthday, right? And, um, and so they took me in, you know, for the violation of an injunction. I didn't know then. I know now. It's like, that's like, that's my clean date. That's cool. the day that changed my life, you know? I've been clean ever since. I couldn't get out, you know, because it gave me like this period of time in between where usually I just get in, go into jail and then get out almost right away. And then like, think I'm being like, welcome home, like Bobby Shmurda or some shit. And, <laughs> and like, you know, it's, it's like, no, you know, it's just not like that. Like, welcome home, Bobby. Yeah. By the way. Yeah. Welcome home, Bobby. <laughs> <laughs> uh, eventually I called my mom. I hadn't spoken to her in years. And she called like my public defender and all this other stuff. And they got me a court date because I couldn't get out. So once I got in front of the judge and the judge is like, listen, you can go wherever you want. We're removing you from here. Um, you know, uh, we're going to put you on drug testing, regularly scheduled drug testing once a week. Tri-county pass, go wherever you want. You just can't go home. So they released me at 430 in the morning with nothing but a pink piece of paper in my hand. Why do they do that? I don't know. It's crazy, right? Like it's asinine. Like, what's the fucking benefit of releasing someone at four thirty in the morning? I don't know, but I wasn't complaining. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, you like, weren't waiting till yeah, nine. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. You don't know. You know what? This is just. This is not. This is I not going to work. But for like, me. I always wonder why they release people out at those times. It's really weird, and nothing really makes sense in there. And I think that's part of like the psychological part of it. You know what I mean? Um, and so, like, your wallet is like in Fort Lauderdale. You're in Pompano. It's like a game show. You know, you gotta, <laughs> you gotta, you know, like it's like some kind of like survivor shit. It's like a rat maze. Yeah, yeah, you gotta figure out like who's gonna get home. So like everyone like flashes this paper on the bus, and like I got on the bus and I went home, and I remember going there, and it's like you know, I remember feeling like at, right as I got up on Broward Boulevard on that bus, it's like you know, you're not gonna like what you see, and uh, I went in there and. uh she was in there. She was in bed with some dude, some dude I'd never seen before. Is like in my house and all this other stuff and. I was just like, like, that's what I needed to see, right? Like to know like that part was closed. So I'm packing up two garbage bags of clothes. And um, just as I'm about to leave, like, uh, she's like, uh, wait, you know, I need help. You know, I'm sick. Can you help me one last time? And, you know, like you said, you know, chivalry ain't dead. So I walked back up Broward Boulevard with her again. And this time I got to where I was supposed to go. And uh, I seen dude and like, you know, if you're from Florida, like, you get to see some really innovative shit. Like, people have, like, transformers for cars. Like, their <laughs> doors come apart and they have secret compartments. And, and like, so I knew this guy has this, like, really creative door. So I'm, like, leaning, tapping on his door. Like, just give me the shit. You know, I'd been in jail for a minute. And he's like, you know, you look great. And I'm like, <laughs> thanks. You know, it means a lot coming from... The, the dope man, you the know? The dope too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Really me. Really, yeah. I'm really proud of that. And um, um, he's like, yeah. He goes, but I don't have anything, you know? And it turns out he did have it. You know, he just didn't want to give it to me. And um, at that point, you know, I was done walking at Broward Boulevard, you know? And uh, I hopped on a bus and I, and I went to a recovery house. 
um, literally walk in like, Hey, I need help, you know? And, uh, no money for first week rent. They just took you in. No, I, I let them know, like, you know, I'm, you know, I'm not going to front. Like I called my mom, you know, <laughs> I'm, like, <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, Hey, listen, you know, like, <laughs> I ain't going to make it like I got it off the muscle. You know what I mean? Like, no, it, it, uh, I called my mom and like, she put up the money for me, you know? Nice. And, uh, you know, and that's the last money I ever took from my mom too. You know, now that I think of it, it's pretty, and it's a pretty deep piece if I think about it. And uh, mm -hmm. it's the last time, uh, you know, I didn't say nothing, you know, because I always told her, you know, whenever I got tried to get clean or whatever. This is going to be it. Yeah, this is it. No, they love me here. You know, oh, you kidding me? I'm probably going to be a director there in like okay. 90 days, you know, like uh, I'm doing better in this program anyone ever has, you know, and like I'd gas up how wonderful I was doing. But this time I just didn't say anything, you know, I just concentrated on what was important. And then at six months, right, like, uh, you know, you hear in recovery a lot, like, attraction rather than promotion, you know. Uh, she asked me, she's like, what the fuck's going on? And I got to share with her, you know, about, uh, you know, that I was a member of the 12-step fellowship that saves and changes lives. And that I had a, I participated in something called sponsorship. And that uh, I was visiting a regularly scheduled home group and got to know people. And they had things like conventions and and for some reason, I go fucking bowling now. Um, <laughs> and I got to share that with her. And I just remember being truly happy, you know. For me, it was, uh, you know, we'd hang out in the parking lot till like 2 in the morning and go to Denny's. And I swear to God, there was times where I had like a couple months clean. And you couldn't tell me on the way home that I didn't have the best time of my whole life. Just hanging on the parking lot, listening to music, some kid freestyling or something, some girls laughing and fucking around and then we go to denny's and no one would really have money except for like one person he'd like pay for a couple of us and we just get kicked out of denny's for being too loud or whatever and then get home at three in the morning and life made sense for a little bit you know oh 100 percent. i mean like like i was telling you like in the beginning you know like when i got clean like uh everybody was like 22 and i was like 35 so like i had this like uh huge gap so i'm just looking for things to disqualify myself mm -hmm. right like like you're too young i'm too old like different things to make sure that the recovery process wouldn't fit for me i became friends with like this kid who had like this long like porn star mustache <laughs> and like the tightest jeans you ever seen in your life you know and like he would and him and i and he would take me to like meetings and stuff that was like my first exposure to like na you know i'd been to na once before it's like that time i was lying about my clean time like they talked me into going to uh this convention like they do these like clean time countdowns mm -hmm. and like i'm like standing up for this like fake time bawling my eyes out like and not knowing why mm -hmm. you know that was like my first experience you know and like I, you couldn't help me like i was having like the time of my life you know what i mean i still feel that way mm-hmm even after 12 years clean, like uh, the clean time countdown at a convention, going to the spiritual retreat in the Keys, just being around like family. Like there's a feeling of belonging that I get from 12-step meetings that I haven't gotten anywhere in my whole life. Even at like my family Thanksgiving dinners, even like at Christmas, like even like in school, like even my friends that aren't addicts, like as much as I... I love being like with them and whatever. There's nothing that compares to like what I feel. Even if I don't know people in recovery, just knowing that you guys are addicts, I just feel at home. No, 100%. It's like, it's a common thread. It's like an unspoken bond, you know? And when you get somewhere and, and you know, like just like, let's face facts. Like people don't just go to 12-step meetings 
because they don't really have shit else to do. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm sure it does happen here and there, mm -hmm. but like, you know, welcome to those people too. Like there's a, if you're there, chances are like you've done some of the things that I've done. You know, chances are you've taken walks up Broward Boulevard or roads much like it, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, chances are, you know, you've uh, had to make those desperate phone calls, you know, and uh, and chances are, you know, you didn't feel a part of either. And for a group of people who never really felt a part of, you know, we really have a ton of unity you know, mm -hmm. in, in each other. So, yeah, it's, it's pretty it's pretty deep if you think about it. Absolutely. Um. So what has the past couple of years been like for you? It's been really uh, pretty amazing, you know, like, you know, I'm not going to sit here and glorify things for you. You know, like I've had like failed relationships, you know, I've had uh, I have a clean time mugshot. Mm -hmm. Right. I'll, maybe we'll save that for another episode. But like, I have like a bunch of things that have happened to me, you know, um, throughout the process of recovery that I thought like for sure, like my first year clean, I thought for sure, like most people would have gotten high, mm -hmm. you know, like I went back to the house that I used in, you know, with the girl that I used with a couple times and to see her and, and like went out on like dates with people that are like, quote unquote, like normal you know, and like, I hate when people say that they're mm -hmm. like, or they try to make it cute and say normies, you know, mm -hmm. like, no, dude, like, like, I'm pretty fucking normal, you know, like, I don't know, like, these people would be like, this one chick was like pulling like airplane bottles out of her purse <laughs> constantly throughout the whole date. And I'm like, yeah, this is not fucking normal. Like, like, I know a place you should go. You know what I mean? Like, I ended up like turning into like this recovery advocate as opposed to like having a date, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So like my first year was like a, was a very interesting experience. As time went on, you know, I just started to take what I learned within the fellowship that I attend and start to apply it to like my professional life, my relationships with my family and things of that sort. Obviously uh, things were a little curtailed uh, with the pandemic and uh, you know, everybody was doing uh, their 12-step meetings on like Zoom or Blue Jeans. I don't even know what the fuck Blue Jeans is. I just know that they do. I've never heard of that. Yeah, it's another one of those things. And like, I was really excited about that, you know, in the beginning. I'm like, you mean to tell me I could hear any speaker anywhere in the world 24? <laughs> like, you know, like, it's like, like a video speaker tape type situation. Mm -hmm. And like, I was really excited for it. Bro, that shit lasted like three weeks. After that, I was like, yo, this fucking sucks, bro. <laughs> like, and, and like the way that we would communicate it was like through social media pages. Mm -hmm. And like in the comments section, I'm just watching like the very worst image of us mm -hmm. like unfold, like everybody being petty. Like it turned into like, like tensions are already high because everyone's afraid of like impending death coming from a pandemic and mm -hmm. like, you know, the possibility of it. And then now like there are just tearing each other apart, arguing about the stupidest things. And, uh, and like, I found myself in a place where I was like, yeah, you know what? This is a great time to just check out. Like I could fade away and do like I did. A lot of people have. Ah, uh, trust me. Mm -hmm. I know. So I understand, you know, I understand where they come from. And I, I don't necessarily mean you know, go back to using. I just mean, you know, stop showing up, you know, stop participating in sponsorship, mm -hmm. you know, stop going to, like, if I start thinking like, oh, like these events are lame, you know, that I go to, like these recovery events, um, at that point, like I already know my spirit's in the wrong place. And so like, um, 
I got to a place where that's what I wanted to do. You know, I wanted to kind of like break off and uh, I caught myself and uh, I did what I thought. I called uh, up my sponsor and I talked to him and I'm like, yeah, this is ugly, you mm-hmm. know? And I had, uh, you know, some uh, step work I had worked on that would sat in my bag for 18 months. Wow. But it was done. Just never went over it. Yeah. And so I like tightened it up a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, uh, he lives up in Philadelphia and uh, and went up there. And I'm like, we need to cover this. Mm-hmm. And like, uh, it helped me to get in touch with a few things. And the cool part about it was that like, even though like I had written it, what in the grand scheme of things seems like a while ago, like the information's still so relevant, mm-hmm. you know? And if anything, it's more relevant because of how like how much it ties into the what's happening to me right now, mm-hmm. right? The common threads of the things that I do, my patterns, uh, the way that I react to situations or or just taking situations and replacing the people, you know? Yeah, it's the same thing. Yeah, it's the same, you know? Um, so time doesn't matter. I remember doing like an inventory of my sponsor and he was like, you see these girls? It's the same girl. (laughs) And uh, it's interesting because we, if you don't change the thought behind the behavior, you just end up in the same scenario with like different paint on the walls, you know, same girl, different name, you know, or whatever, same business partner situation, just different name, you know. 100%. And like one of the things that I've discovered is like, it's avoidance, right? Like leaving things undone and procrastination. Mm-hmm. You know, in getting in touch with, uh, you know, my family, like I told you about, right? Like a lot of questions were answered for about my past. Yeah, are you cool with your family now? With my mom? With your mom, your other family you found out you had? Me and my mom are extremely tight. Mm-hmm. Um, we talk every day. Cool. It's become, uh, it's become the relationship that I've always wanted, sometimes against my will. Like I came to like the rooms of recovery to forge a relationship with her. And then sometimes that's the last phone call that I want to answer. Like, it's kind of a paradox in that way because it's like, ugh, again, you know, like one of those things that like, it's just too much now, you know, I got what I wanted, you know, enough's enough, you mm-hmm. know? And um, on the other side, like I've handled it with kid gloves, you know, um, because it's a, uh, it's weird, you know, it's like uh, finding out about all this family. But um, what ended up happening was uh, after covering all of that, my grandmother was so important to me. Um, I found out my father's dad was alive, wow. nearly 100. And he lived in like Puerto Rico. And so I just didn't want everything to constantly go undone. So after coming back from Philly, like shortly thereafter, I planned a trip to Puerto Rico to go at least be in his presence because he was not doing well. Mm-hmm. You know, at least be able to say. That you met him, yeah. Yeah, I showed up, right? And so I did, you know, and like I got there, I was like, oh, listen, let's go zip lining. Let's do this. Let's do that. You know, like I wanted to do everything but that. Mm-hmm. My girlfriend was like, uh, you came here to see your grandfather. And that's what you're going to do. Right? That's cool. Yeah. Shout out, Sarah. Right. And so I did that. So I called my uncle and I asked him, I'm like, hey, so can I have the address? He's like, what do you mean address? There's no address. He goes, what you do is you take the name of this town and you put it in your maps. And then once you get to that town, you start asking people where he wow. lives. Yeah. So I was like, all right. Now, really? Yeah. Oh, that's crazy. So I, I put the name of the town in, right? And uh, I started like going up in this mountain, these mountains and just like 
asking people, like, do you know Macho Pietro? That's my grandfather's name, mm-hmm. right? And uh, dude, don't you know that like six out of eight people I asked know him? Knew him. Oh my God. Yeah. But none of them spoke like English, mm-hmm. you know? But they you don't were, speak any Spanish, huh? Because no, your dad's Puerto Rican. No, yeah. only thing I know how to do in Spanish is cop. Well, I can order some food too. Yeah, I was gonna say tacos and no, no cocaine. Not, uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like a little bit, a little more than that. I'm very insecure about my Spanish, right? So, and this is like something that's very important. So, I finally found this guy. They went in and grabbed this one dude. He came out, mm-hmm. and he's like the guy who speaks English, right? And he's like, "So what's going on?" And I'm like, "Well, I told him like what I'm here to do." He's like, "Oh shit!" He's like, "Hold on." He goes in the house, gets a composition book, and draws out this like crude map. Wow. And says, so he like, and like, I'm like on this like rural mountain, like bumpy roads. Like I crashed the rental at one point, like bumped it into something, mm-hmm. I crash. And uh, the whole map starts off with left at the mango tree, right? <laughs> and, uh, and so, but dude, like I followed that map and I got up to like this clearing and there was like two or three houses up there. And uh, there were some people sitting outside and I'm like, I asked them, you know, do you know uh, Macho Pietro? And they're like, right here and they point to the other house and i'm like fuck dude you know like i made it it's like in the middle of the afternoon and like it was like it's beautiful up there you know and so they bring this kid out you know he's like this like 12 14 year old kid and they're like here come come because he speaks english Mm -hmm. right and so the kid's like come with me all right so i'm like walking down this hallway right it's like this long ass hallway in this house I go around the corner and there's this man, you know, almost 100 years old, like laying in this like hospital bed that was like makeshift that they put in there for him. And um, it was my grandfather, you know, and like I sat there and like took that in for a minute. Right. And um, as I'm taking that in, all of a sudden, like that gets cut off, like the whole moment gets cut off because this kid starts flicking the lights. I'm I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm trying to wake him up for you. So you can right. talk with him. And I'm like, no, dude, like, it's okay. You know, I just wanted to be here, right? And um, he goes, yeah, I don't come here that much. He goes, uh, because it makes me depressed. And I'm like, oh, I'm like, uh, are you related to him? He's like, yeah, wow. that's, that's my great-grandfather. And so I'm, I'm like, really? well, how many other people? He's like, that house, that house. So it turns out, like, uh, like I have this, like, whole, like, expansive family. And I wasn't there very long, you know. It was, like, a 20-minute, half-hour thing. And then I just realized, that, like, as I was leaving there, like, two things. Like, you know, number one, this kid didn't know I was this guy's grandson when he brought me in. So you just let anybody in this fucking house. <laughs> like, you psycho, right? And, uh, and number two, like, you know, what, what I thought was like this extremely painful situation. It was probably one of the most beautiful experiences of my life. And um, in leaving, like, uh, just uh, a week and a half ago, my, my grandfather died. Well, sorry to hear that. No, I mean, it is a very sad thing, but I showed up, mm-hmm. you know. And I did what everybody told me to do, mm-hmm. you know, and I was able to experience that, you know. And I can say, you know, and share this with you, you know. Uh, that I had that opportunity because I wanted to do something different, you know. I thought it was time to check out. And if I had checked out, I wouldn't have had this experience, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, I wouldn't have been able to to do this and, and to really, like, connect some serious dots to begin to feel whole again. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? 
And that's the whole point about recovery is that it's not about abstinence. You know, this is about, you know, living a life that aligns with what you truly want. You know, like when you do, you know, your third step, it talks about God's will and self-will and whatever. And it says eventually self-will aligns with God's will. And, you know, when people are reluctant to do the steps, it's like, bro, this isn't making you do something different. This is actually going to push you to what you really want in the first place and not go about it in some unhealthy way because, you know, we go after the things we want usually in an unhealthy, obsessive, empty type of way, you know. And I believe that, you know, when you work the 12 steps, when you have a sponsor, when you're guided through people that know you're on this spiritual journey, whatever, you get what you want anyways, you know. And a lot of times people have this reluctance to work the steps because they're like, that's not what I want to do. Yeah, I mean, like, don't get it twisted. Like, with abstinence, your life will get exceedingly better. One thousand percent. Like right off top. Like, just from getting like, clean. Just remove the drugs, right? Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, the lights are no longer off. The, the water's running. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you might even like be moving into a better house and now your clothes smell better mm-hmm. and things, you look better. People are giving you compliments. You're showing up to work on time. All of these things just happen immediately. And I would find myself in a place where I really think okay, this is what it recovery is. Mm-hmm. I'm getting better, mm-hmm. you know? And the problem is, is that I wasn't able to enjoy that. And so abstinence will give me all of the things that I could possibly want, and recovery just teaches me how to keep them. That's awesome. I know this guy, Ray, who always says, you know, people don't want to go to meetings no more because they got a girlfriend in a car. Shit, I could do that on heroin. (laughs) It's like I had a car and a girl on heroin, you know. And, um, yeah, I truly believe that. I truly believe that, like, the 12 steps makes me enjoy the things that I get through being clean. Because, you know, we've met tons of people that have gotten everything they've ever wanted, stopped going to meetings, and then they don't enjoy the things that they got anyways. Yeah. And it's it's amazing. Like, a lot of those people, like, one of the most powerful things I've known is that, like throughout my process of recovery is that those people come back, mm-hmm. you know, and they call me and they tell me because they knew I'd be here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and just to know that you're a fixture and to know that you're a welcoming fixture, right? And some motherfucker was here for me. You yeah. know what I mean? There's also like this duty that I have that it's like, even if like, you know, God came down today and was like, yo, Brian, you don't got to do any steps. You're good. I'd be like, but dude, what about everyone else? You know, it's like the only selfless thing that we got going on. You know, mind you, yeah, you could do shit for work and you could volunteer. Like there's nothing really that compares or um, substitutes being a member of the program Mm -hmm. that saved your life because there was somebody who fucking was a member to get your ass in the door. No, 100%. You know, remember I told you about that home group that they wanted to make me GSR? Mm-hmm. I went on that vicious four-year run, and all I could think of throughout that whole four-year run was like, you know what? Like, I know where to go. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I could go back and see those people, and I would have to, like, swallow my pride and go back in there and let them know that I let them down, mm-hmm. right? And so, um, and four years, I just lived in this, like, immense shame, but I can't go back. I can't let them know, mm-hmm. right? And um, after I had, like, a year clean, a friend of mine needed a ride home. He said, hey, I need a ride because I just got my car, mm-hmm. right? I got like a, a year, you know, so like shit's going pretty good, right? Like I didn't have a driver's license for 13 years. Wow. Yeah. So like uh, my driver's license was suspended in 03. And, uh, and I literally had to like do the DUI classes 
for a DUI um, in 03 in 2016 with like 18 months clean. Wow. And they're asking me, they go, what happens when you drink? I'm like, I don't fucking know. <laughs> like, dude, like, like, bro, like, like this doesn't apply to me like right now, you know, like I get it. It did, you know? And like, um, <laughs> so it was like really, it was really confusing, but I had to do it to get the license. And, and so like this kid knew that I went through all that. He's like, let me get a ride, you know? And uh, he's like, I want to go to my home group. He gets in the car as I'm looking where we're going. I'm like, holy shit. You know, this is that home group, cool. you know, I'm like, you know what, you know, I got some self-acceptance. I got that driver's license, you know, I got like a year plus clean. I'm like, so I walk up in there and I see the guys that I knew and they were still there. Right. And I'd been avoiding this meeting and, and all of that. Cause I didn't want to like have to face them, but now I got this time. So I walk in, I'm like, it's me, you know, I'm clean and I'm back. And they looked at me and I'm like, who the fuck are you? Yeah. You know, so like I'd used for like this like four year portion of time in fear of going back to this group or this meeting and uh, to let these people know that like I let them down. Like I was in this constant fear of that. In reality, mm. they didn't even know who the fuck I was. Yeah, I have a friend who stopped going to meetings and I was like, bro, come to this meeting with me. And he'll only go to like small meetings. He didn't want to go to this big meetings. Like, nah, bro, people talk shit about me there. And like people are going to say stuff about the girl that I'm dating. I was like, bro. No one even fucking knows you, bro. It's been like six years. It's like a whole new crowd of people, bro. No one even you fucking walk in there be a fucking ghost, bro. No one knows who fucking like we think we're so important in our head, mm-hmm. you know. But um, I just want to say thank you for coming out, bro. It's always a pleasure to see you. Always a pleasure. Thank you, man. Absolutely, man. Appreciate it. Thank you. This show is not affiliated with any specific 12-step program. If you or a loved one is struggling with an addiction, please find a local 12-step meeting. If you believe you may need detox or drug treatment of any kind, please call 888-699-9395 to speak to a specialist. The show is sponsored by United Recovery Project, a state-of-the-art drug and alcohol rehab facility. You can visit our website at unitedrecoveryproject.com.